Hey, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you, depending on when you are watching this edition of Hypnosis Week live at hypnosisweek.com. To the side of me, depending on which way this comes out, uh, is the gentleman I will be interviewing today. All his details, as always, will be below the speaker symbol you see on your audio podcast platform or right below the video on YouTube, Vimeo, or all the other video platforms where this will have been uploaded. Please be sure to, after this interview, not during, pay attention during, but then straight away afterwards, dive over to www.rexsykes.com. That's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. And you don't need to be a mind reader to know that I'd like to welcome to the show this week, the man himself, Mr. Rex Sykes. How are you doing, sir? I am so thrilled and, and happy to be here. You do such a, a prolific work and the volume of, of output that you do and the way you contribute to all of the different viewers and readers and listeners is amazing. So I'm quite well and I'm pleased to be here. Thank you so much. Well, you are as ever as busy with so many things. Um, we're, we're gonna dive into them individually, but as an overview for anyone who, who's been asleep and not noticed in our community, you've uh, got a best-selling book out called Life on Your Terms, Create the Life You Want. Tap that title into Amazon up, it'll come read the reviews. Well, in fact, don't save time, just go and order it. But if you, if, if you like to read reviews before you order a book, read them and it speaks for itself. We'll come to that in more depth later. You um, Basically, if you tap your name into Google, the key things that jump up is that you are a pioneer in NLP, neurolinguistic programming, that you um, have got a background in um, film production, television, and um, well, rather than me explaining to everyone, can you tell us your journey that got you to where you are now? Best-selling author, um, master of NLP, motivational speaker. What was your journey? Because you, at one point, you were just Rex Sykes that was born on on this planet. Well, the short version is I was born, I am blessed, and and here I am. The uh, slightly longer version is. Um, my parents put me into acting classes when I was about dancing and acrobatics and acting classes when I was three and four. I started as a, as a dancer and acrobat and, and then graduated in acting, not with the hope that I would have anything to do with that as a profession, but just as a way of saying, let's, let's have this kid exposed to some other things besides, you know, what he would normally be exposed to. Mm -hmm. Fell in love. I absolutely fell in love. And uh, by the time I was six, this is, this is where it segues. I had been raised Catholic at the insistence of my grandmother, who was Catholic. My parents weren't. So the, both my sister and I were raised Catholic. The pomp and circumstance of the Latin mass at that time was intriguing. It was boring. It was, it was difficult as a child. But I, I always felt that this, this guy up front had some kind of mystical connection. And I wanted that connection. I wanted to know what he knew that I didn't. Mm -hmm. So I asked my mom at the, about the age of six to seven, start reading me books that, uh, you know, like the Bhagavad Gita, Napoleon Hill, and, you know, things. So I would sit on her lap, and she would read these books. And, you know, and I would, I, I don't know how much I actually understood, but I got that there was something going on. By the time I was 11, I, uh, oh, and by the time I was eight, I was performing as a mind reader, mentalist, magician. All right, cool. As a child, yeah, I was, I was traveling doing that. I got hooked up with some people, and we toured 
And, um, you know, I was this like little child prodigy. And then you grow out of it, you know, by the time you're a teenager, by the time you become an adult, the same thing with the movies is, is how precocious you are as a kid becomes, you know, okay, yeah, but now you're an adult, what can you do kind of thing. Um, so by, by, the, by 11, I started the study of hypnosis and meditation. And I studied uh, stage hypnosis and hypnosis with some fairly renowned uh, stage hypnotists in, in the United States. And um, I later I worked with Pat Collins and uh, helped oh, yeah. teach, her, teach her some of her, her private classes. And I worked for her for a couple of years. And, uh, but I continued the journey. When I was um, 18, I became professional in the Screen Actors Guild as an actor. And, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, within about the next five or six years, I was involved in NLP and, and all sorts of stuff. I had a crisis in my life uh, when I was around 24, 25 that lasted about two years. And um, the end result, I write about it in my book, but the end result was I locked myself in my own apartment and refused to, to go out until I could face the world again. And so I used hypnosis, I used meditation and visualization and affirmations. But that's really when I discovered what made it all work for me. And I've been teaching it ever since. And so I'm now 66. I was about 25. So that many years later, um, that has been my journey. So what I discovered in that room, and I call it directed questions, is that, you know, questions direct your mind. You ask me a question like, what started my journey? I, I hope I answered that question. I don't go, I was abducted. Oh, no, yeah, you did real well. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, in other words, if I said where you get your shirt, you probably know where if you don't know, you know, don't remember. You say, well, it was a gift or I'm not sure. But you but you stay on topic. You don't go. I play baseball. <laughs> you yeah. Know, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, because of how we communicate. So when you pose a question to your brain, your brain goes to search for the answer. You, of course, know that that's called transderivational search and that it will continue to work long after the conscious mind gives up. So, you know, tip of the tongue phenomenon, you know. What's that person's name? I don't know. I don't know. I'll forget about it an hour later or whenever it pops into your head. And you oh, it was, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was Alex. It was Jonathan. It was. Um, so, but that's what I discovered sitting in this chair was I would say, why did this happen to me? And I would feel bad. And I go, you know, is anybody ever going to like me again? You know, and I'd feel bad because I'd lost all my friends. I destroyed my career. I lost a romance. You know, I'm like, you know, what did I do to deserve this? You know, how come I screw up all the time? And I just kept feeling worse. And at some point I realized I didn't want to know why I screwed up. I didn't want to know what was wrong with me. I wanted to know how I could get better. So I started to say, what do I have to do to get better? You know, how quickly can I get better? I don't want to know how long it's going to take. I want to know how soon it's going to happen. And as I started to change questions, I started to get relief above and beyond anything I had done with affirmations. Because with the affirmations, I sit in the chair and go, I am confident and half of me would go, no, you're not. You just totally screwed up. You know, I, I could do anything. Well, yeah, you can, you can mess your life up. That's for sure. But, you know, so, but by, by asking questions and saying, wow, I wonder if I, how soon I can begin to feel better. And when I feel better, what's the first things that I'm going to think and feel that make me, you know, uh, live joyously. Suddenly, you know, my brain was, was working as a, the servant it's meant to be. And, and delivering me those answers and those sensations and those pictures and those sounds and, you know, and the kinds of things. And so I, I you know, emerged about six weeks later, um, better for the experience, you know, banged up from having gone before. At the time that you went through that and came to those realizations, were you aware of um, what we call in NLP reframing? Because that's essentially what you've 
kind of just described. Yeah, I mean, I was familiar with NLP and stuff like that, you know, and and um, and you know, and hypnosis and suggestion. I mean, so yes, but um, and yes, it is a reframe. It's actually a shift from you know looking at it one way to looking at it another way. You know, repositioning it in my head, reframing it, um, reassigning meaning to it. Uh, and even reassigning a cause to it, you know, instead of saying that, you know, the world screwed up, I go, I will take responsibility for this. So if I take responsibility for it, then I can fix it. I just don't know how to fix it yet. So what do I need to know? What do I need to do? How do I have to feel in order to start feeling better to move forward? And, and again, some of it in terms of the reframing, it wasn't just that I was reframing it, like um, looking for the worst, looking for the best in a bad situation. I was literally asking myself questions um, with the, you know, Neville Goddard had eloquently said, you, you got to live from the feeling of the wish fulfilled when it comes to manifesting, you know, or law of attraction. Okay. Act as if you already are. And, and of course, NLP, you know, and hypnosis has embraced that. Um, that didn't originate it because it's been around for eons. Well, act as if, heck, NLP, a lot, Obviously, this doesn't apply to all NLP trainers, courses, or students, but Christ almighty. The number of times I people see people who take what NLP call modeling or right. acting as if right. you've got the ability to... So literally, that they become clones. It's quite worrying. I, I, I went through that phase too. I mean, it, for a certain aspect of my training. But as a kid, I used to imagine that I was Harry Houdini. I would put Harry Houdini's head on me. I would have him step into my body from, you know, and I would possess him. I wanted him to be my parents, you know, not that I didn't love my parents, but like if I had been Houdini's kid, how would it be different? If I had been Houdini, what would it be like? And so I would step into him or have him step into me or I, or I literally put his head on. And because um, I was fascinated with magic. And, and by the way, what transformed me and my ability to teach and perform and to speak and to do the things I do was a story about Howard Thurston, the, the illusionist, okay. who used to stand behind the curtains and look out at his audience. You know the story, right? Yeah. And go, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And, you know, you'd say, Rex, I got a million people for you to talk to. I go, great. I'm there. I'm down with that. It doesn't bother me. They go, you got two people to talk to. I go, great. I got a friend you want to talk to. I go, you know. Because it's it's about love and fun and 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 value and, and just you know, so the more you shower love on people, the easier it is. So uh, that was something I embraced from a very early age, and and um, and again, you know, I was also acting and dancing in front of people at a very early age. So it's just something I'm I'm very accustomed to. But that said. I'm no smarter, better, different than anybody else. If I can do something like that, so can you. It's just a matter of making it a habit. I was fortunate that I get to make performing a habit at a young age. That didn't mean that I didn't have to overcome certain things later on or that I didn't have you know, difficulty at other times that I, that I would then reframe or reposition or re-ask a question. Or, mm -hmm. um, but what, going back to what you just said, the modeling thing. Long before neuro-linguistic programming, there were modelers. And in fact, you can argue that Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, The Law of Success, was, is, a, is a book about modeling. Well, he before is, that, I think, I mean, way, you'll, prob maybe, you'll probably know ones even... Oh, way before that. You'll remember way before. But one of the main ones in terms of law of attraction and where Napoleon Hill went with things, I think it's got to be worthy of mentioning is Charles Haney, The Master Key. 
Oh, of course, absolutely, absolutely, and, and without a doubt. And I'm glad that you mentioned him because I don't always mention him, but but he is he is so paramount to all of this work. I think but, people excuse the language, um, but people are used to me, so I. Um, I think a lot of law of attraction stuff that's been commercialized more so to make money rather than help people has bastardized what yes. was in. Napoleon Hill and Charles Honey, and I think the real core is back then. Well, you know, the difference between then and now probably has a lot to do with the culture and the time. They didn't have internet. They didn't have telephones. They, you know, I mean, some, some had phones, but they didn't have motion pictures for a while. They didn't, and then they did. They didn't have radio, and then they did. I mean, a lot of stuff came about. Today, everybody wants it fast, quick, down, dirty, and cheap. You know, they don't want to go through what most people did in, in those days. And that was if you wanted something, you dedicated yourself to it. If you were an adept, if you were an, an, uh, an initiate or an, a, a, a novice in the meditation arts in the East, for example, or in the Greeks or wherever, you know, you had years of apprenticeship or in martial arts, you had years of, of honing and culling your skills and learning so that by the time people became black belts, it was because their white belt got really dirty because they had gone through all the effort in order to become a black belt. It wasn't that they just paid for classes, showed up three times a week, and then after two years were made a black belt, you know, because they, they, because they did the coursework. So a lot of law of attraction, uh, the secret, while I love the secret, you know, and I don't want to say it did a disservice, but people misunderstood it. Napoleon Hill says it, Hanning says it, you got to make a study of this. You got to do it. Hill would say, don't, you know, read this chapter every day for 30 days. Read this four times before you do it. Read, make sure you got all the 13 steps because once you have the 13 steps, then everything will start coming together. And people read the book and they put it down. And they go, okay, I read it. And then they, I'm going to attract things. And then they wonder out why it doesn't work. And then they blame it. You've got to take action. And I, I mean, with your book, there are um, practical exercises. One of them that jumps into my head is, um, or at least it's the way one of the people on the reviews mentioned how rather than just thinking, you know, I want this dream else, they went out and bought craft board and they made a 3D, rather than just a vision board, pictures on the wall, they made a 3D thing. And I'm because we kind of 3D makes it more easily to visualize, yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm so impressed when he sent me that. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, that's somebody who gets it. That guy's name is Dan. And I mean, he he, he got the book and then he said, I've got my dream house. He highlighted it, sent me the picture. And then and you're describing, sent me a picture of this model that he's building, you know, of it. And I'm like, that's how it that's how it works. You you know, Hill said, Hanning said, Waddle said, heck, you know, you can go back to, to Buddha. You know, um, they all said what occupies your mind most of the time is what you become. And that's whether it's good or bad, it has no judgment. So, so what you want to do is make sure that you think stuff that makes you feel good as opposed to feel bad, because yeah. you're going to create one or the other. And two, most people today are distracted. There's so many things competing for their attention. And there's so little, again, I mean, go back to, you know, it used to, an apprenticeship used to be a minimum of seven years. And then you became a fellow craft and then you became a crafts person. You know, there was this, a process to mastery that everybody just now wants to get their certificate and be done. You know, and it, it's, it's truly um, there, there's no 
you know, and I know, you know, you can speed things up. The promise of neurolinguistic programming was you can model things and have it faster than, than the original mm -hmm. model. But here's what I say to that. And, I, and I've always said it for now almost 40 years, if not, long, if not 40 years. You can learn to be as good as Milton Erickson in less time than Milton Erickson. So if it took Milton um, 30 not years- sure. to, I, I, I really wouldn't want to be at Milton's level. <laughs> there you go. He was a bit crap, really. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you with that. But, 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 the, but if it took him 30 years to get good and it takes you 29 years, 364 days, you've done it faster than Milton Erickson. Yeah. I mean, in other words, people think, well, I mean, because if hypnosis were all that great, and it's great, then, then our governments worldwide would just put people in a chair and make whoever they want to be whatever they want. Um, they kind of do on some levels. Like. Well, on some levels. But I mean, you know, if, yeah. if it were that great, you could have a brain surgeon go, you know, under, under hypnosis, you know, somebody who's never operated and, and put them under hypnosis and have them be a, a brain surgeon tomorrow or a professional basketball player tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, there are things that come with experience. Oh, yeah. You can have, you can have the mindset of one. You can develop the confidence, perhaps, of one. But in order to actually, you know, to actually benefit from the skill, you have to have failure as well as... Well, that's one thing I was going to ask you. But what's your view on this? And I, I think I can guess based on what you've said so far. But NLP conventionally talks about uh, possible in the world, possible for you. Uh, you know, if we're modeling, if one person can do it, you could do it too, which personally I think is complete and utter bullshit. Um, there are limitations, not as nowhere near to the level most people negatively put upon themselves, but there are some things that some people are just naturally, for example, physically cut out to be better at than other people. And no amount of NLP techniques is ever going to turn certain people into that level of sports person in a certain sports field, for example. Well, you know, agreed, you know, and, and here's the, here's the way I tend to address that. And, and, and I'll go back to Napoleon Hill for that matter. And we could go to other sources as well, but Hill, Hill said, you know, if you, if you believe it, you can, if you, if you, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. And then he added anything within reason. And he said, and, and yeah. when asked why he didn't say you will achieve it, he said, because I don't know what you're going to do with it. First off, I mean, you may not do anything with it. So you won't achieve it if you don't actually do what I suggest. So that's the first thing. But if you do what I suggest, then it's possible for you within reason. And I, and it, when I first started studying him, you know, as a kid, and then even later as an adult, I was like, well, that's kind of this, you know, default of, well, then if I don't get it, I don't get it. But I, I later, I, I later understood him to mean because he says it in other places, but he says, you know, he says, I don't believe in miracles that are the law of nature. So if it's something that's natural, if, if it works within the law of nature, then that's not really a miracle. You mm -hmm. know, a miracle would be suspending the laws of nature. So, you know, it, it, it would be it operate outside of the laws of nature. So, but people think of uh, law of attraction or neurolinguistic programming in those terms as if it's a panacea, as if you could do anything and, and everything, because if it's possible for one, it's possible for everybody. I do believe this. If it is possible for one to maximize themselves and accomplish great things, it is possible for you to do the same thing. And, and you know, we can argue that, 
Michael Jordan is a great basketball player. Could I ever be as great a basketball player as Michael Jordan? Could I jump as high as he could? Well, probably not, right? I'm a small white guy compared to a large black man who's got a musculature and a height advantage on me and who's, who grew up playing his sport. Yeah. But what can I do? Because it was possible for him to become a, a really good player in a, in, the, in a professional league. Could I do that? I might be able to do that. I might be able to maximize my best. I mean, there are five foot three basketball players. It's amazing. They, are, they aren't all tall. Mm -hmm. but, but I would have to put in the dedication required maybe even more dedication than what Michael Jordan did because I don't have some of those natural abilities or those uh, physical advantages that he would have. Um, I might also not have the attitude that he had or the willingness to fail as much as he did or the willingness to risk as much as he did. But is it possible that I could become a, a, an NBA superstar basketball player? It's possible. The question is, is it likely and the answer for me would be no, it's not likely because I'm not going to go there. But, but could somebody else do that? Now, another way to think about that is if they, if they decide that that's what they want in life, like in our country, my country, only one person gets to be president in theory every four years. Mm -hmm. So if everybody in the world decided that I want to be president, only one person still going to be president. And so... You, I would say this, anyone who wants to undertake that, they up their chances of being president. They may not become president. It's kind of like the lottery. If you don't play the lottery, you're not going to win the lottery. Oh, yeah. But if you play the lottery, it doesn't mean you will win the lottery. So, you know, there, there's, there's, it's the marketing of these things, which is, is oftentimes marketing <laughs> and then marketing yeah i'm gonna blatantly say that some people blatantly dishonestly oh. mislead people um oh. I, I i know that you don't as people will see when they go to rexsites.com and when they get a hold of your book and um, that's why i'm asking certain uh questions so that people can see things asking. aren't as clear cut as a lot of these crazy ads that pop up on social media make out. Let's address that. Well, I'll say I'll call it values because I'm using the NLP terminology, but it's what, what a person really wants deep down as opposed to what their ego or society might be telling them or making them think that they want, which can quite often be the reason why they don't end up getting what they've apparently set their mind to because in truth they didn't really deep down want it no. how do you go about because i know you do cover it in your book but i mean can you give us a bit of insight making sure that people actually put effort into getting what they truly want rather than what the paths well that, that's oftentimes the process you know when i was a kid you know i might if somebody said what do you want right now i go i want a cookie but that's not what i wanted for life or i want a red balloon you know um, but but here's an important thing. If I say I want a red balloon, at least you know that if you wanted to get me a red balloon, that you could do that. You could go out and find a red balloon. And I could say, well, I didn't mean that color, red. I wanted. I had a different red in mind. But you were in the you were in the right range. But if I say I don't want a green balloon, you don't know what I want. You know. You, you know. I mean, I could want any. I could want a zebra. I mean, you know, what do I want? I don't. You know, nobody knows. And the problem with a lot of people is that they don't get clear about what it is that they really, truly do want and make it and make it 
clear in their head. And so there's a process of getting clear. We're conditioned to want all sorts of things. We're conditioned to want to be better than the, the neighbors and to do better and have more TV sets and more cars and, you know, and have more money. So a lot of what we want may not be what we intrinsically want because what we may want is a feeling of being important or a feeling of being significant or connecting with another person or having a deep loving relationship or to, to, to have fun and freedom and passion. You know, for me, freedom, I say freedom is really important, you know, as a value, but I don't often think of it that way. Like I want to be free, but what do I want to do? I want to own my time. I don't want to be somebody else's servant necessarily. I want, I want to own my own time so that I can do what I like. What do I like? I like a lot of leisure stuff. I like to be on the water. I like to be in nature. I like to be with my girl dogs or with my family. So why do I do the other things that I do? Well, I want to help the world. I really do. I learned for myself that I could make changes. And I went, this is so powerful. I have to share it. And I, I want everyone in the world to know it. And, 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 and it, it is also a business of mine. So, so does it, so if I go, I want money, the only reason I would ever want money is so that I could spend more time with my dogs on the water and have leisure time. I don't really want money, but there are some people who do, you know, but getting clear on that. So, so I've never done anything for money in my life. I mean, it sounds like I have, but I've never really, if somebody came along, you know, and said, you know, we want you to do a commercial, but you have to, it, it goes against your values. Doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. I can't do it because it's, it's not me, you know, it has to, it has to fit with me because I'm not free if I then lend my name or image or something to something I don't believe in. And now I've enslaved myself with a, or shackled myself to something I don't care about. And I, and I can't, I personally can't do that. So. Um, I've got to ask you, because you've jumped into my head because you've, you've got a background in acting and film production and TV and stuff, but acting in particular, um, some of the um, listeners and viewers, it's amazing. I was going to say some, but it's more than you'd imagine. It's amazing how many hypnotherapists, nailpers, coaches have got an interest as well in magic and stuff. Um, and David Devant once said, a magician is merely an actor playing the part of a magician. And I paraphrased that years ago and said that um, uh, a hypnotist is merely an actor playing the part of what the audience or client perceive and expect a hypnotist to be. Which leads me to my question of how do you think your experience in acting helped you? I'm not asking you, do you think it helped you? I'm, 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 I'm presupposing that it did help you because through my life experiences, I'm presupposing that it helped you as well, but you may correct me if I'm wrong. How did your acting background help you in terms of the NL, the whole NLP world, training and helping other people? Oh, it's a beautiful question and, and a great, great assumption, great presupposing. Um, absolutely. I think that my training is head and shoulders above so many others. And I don't say that um, egotistically, but because of my background, because I did come from acting. Uh, especially in the early days where most of the people came from the field of therapy or they were therapists who then wanted to become NLP trainers. They didn't know about presentation. They didn't know about acting. They didn't know about imagination or pretending. They'd only learned it in a therapeutic context where I changed my training because I, I, I trained it that way for a long time was to say people want transformation. They want an experience. They want to have fun. They want to live. 
And as children, we learn more through play and imagination and through acting out uh, you know, roles and things than we do from sitting in the classroom trying to remember facts and figures and geographical locations and everything else. So I transformed my workshops into where we were moving and laughing. We did laughter meditation. We had dance. We had body work. We had people rolling down hills and spinning. All at the time, in the 80s, people say, you're not taking this seriously. You know, you're making a mockery of this. And I'd go, yeah, but my people are transforming and they're better than your people. And I don't mean that in a competitive way, but but because they're transforming, they're, it's their DNA that's transforming, not their head, just their thoughts. And, um, and they laughed and they, you know, made fun of me and, you know, they criticized me in books and things like that. Now, almost all the big guys, NLP or otherwise, do what we were doing back in the in the early days, they dance, they sing, they high five, they just because they understand they understand about anchoring too, about having positive states and being in a positive state while you're learning. That's what acting taught me. You know, in other words, I could change from being sad to happy very quickly before neurolinguistic programming. I had to I had to learn the process of of going through emotions and being able to convey them for a camera or on stage. But the difference between me and a lot of other actors was I wanted an on and off switch. And that comes from my prime, my primary, one of my primary acting coaches, who's whose name was Lillian Chauvin. She's passed away. She remained a friend in life for me till her death. But she was like, "You don't want to be one of these method actors who has to be trapped in this character for weeks yeah. at a time. You want when they, they go cut, you want to be back to being Rex." And I'm like, "Yeah." So that's what I learned. I mean, I studied method deeply. And profoundly, I study the most painful aspects of acting. You know, Shelley Winters said Marlon Brando probably hated acting so much because so many actors spend so much time dealing with pain because they always, they, they, so much of the approach was um, in order to convey it, you have to actually experience it so that the camera can pick it up. So you have to relive all those painful moments. So you spent a long time going through all your crap, not resolving it, just going through it and feeling it. And I learned I learned at a, as an actor that that was debilitating. I mean, that's that's where I'm very thankful. So I bring that to neurolinguistic programming. You can step into a role, but you want to be able to step out of that role. You want to be able to convey it, you know, be 100% congruent or act as if and have that imagination and thought deed, you know, and action or thought word and action in your heart and your head. Um, so the acting, incredible. I Even as an actor, prior to getting involved in all this, I told everybody, I said, I don't care what you do, you need to take acting lessons. It'll help you as a pianist, it'll help you as a librarian, it'll help you as a lawyer, because it's about communicating, it's about being believable, it's about being congruent, it's about learning to do things. And, and here's what a lot of people miss. Actors like stand-up comedians, rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse to make it look like it's spontaneous. Oh but it's well-studied and well-practiced. It's not just extemporaneous when you see it. Sometimes there are extemporaneous moments in films with some actors, but for the most part, it's very studied. And the reason for that was because you had to be able to match your cuts editing-wise. You can't be doing this in one scene and this in the same scene you know, from a different angle because then they can't edit it together. So you had to know that when you said these words, like these words, that's where your hands were, so that when you came back and said these words, they were back up there again. And, and so it very, you, you had to systematize your behaviors and you had to learn, you know, how to do it and, and, then, and then practice it so well that you didn't have to think about it because when you're on the set, there's lights, there's cables, there's people, there's 35 people in front of you here, there's people back there, you know, whatever. And you have to be focused on the person in front of you and you do your task. 
that ability to focus and concentrate, that ability to drop into that moment and then relive it as if, because if you have to be really angry or really happy or, you know, I mean, there's a lot to it. And some of the best acting is doing nothing. You know, they'll say, just be on camera, you know, because when you're listening and truly intently listening to somebody, you're, you're interesting. If you're pretending to listen to somebody that shows. And so there's so much that acting brought to hypnosis, to NLP, to my world of transformation, to what I teach and what I do in workshops, to what's in my book, because, because you are modeling, you are, you're doing everything. I learned more about neurolinguistic programming in my acting classes prior to NLP studies. That when I then well, went in, I suspect I suspected so because in truth, uh, as, uh, as viewers and listeners on are, I blatantly, I'm a bit controversial in the way I say it, partly on purpose, but genuinely because I believe it. NLP at the end of the day was just uh, Bandler's way of getting around the fact of laws at the time that you know, what he could and couldn't do therapy-wise, so it was a net. There's nothing in NLP that didn't already exist under a different name. And a lot of it, as you say, acting, you've got um, pop, where you stand on the stage, there's anchoring the emotion, all things that are given different names in NLP to sound important, but they existed before no, you're, you're right. And one of the things that I've tried to do with my programs is demythify it, get rid of the jargon, because jargon is a way of excluding people while making people feel important on the inside. But to get rid of it, you know, we don't have to say visual auditory kinesthetic, we can say picture sounds and feelings. We don't have to. You know, As most you know, people do on the <laughs> street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody, I, I yet to meet somebody who is my kinesthetic sensations are, are, you know, traversing my inner pathway. I, you know, so, so you just make it, you make it, um, palatable, but I, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. Um, but going back to something you said before, because I think it's important, and I've, and I've, I've addressed this a lot in, in over 30 years, um, and I've addressed it recently a lot in clubhouse rooms and things like that, and that is the field of NLP is very murky and very muddy, and anybody, you know, I, I've known people who've never stepped inside a program that say they're a master practitioner, a trainer of NLP, they've never studied anything, they've never, never even read a book, they just like the, the terms, or they fast track, you know, their certificates and, you know, it's murky. So I have, uh, in the 90s, I came out with an article, you know, how do you research an NLP training? And the, and the bottom line is, 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 is do the legwork, you know, go ahead and look at it, look at who the people are, you know, check the Better Business Bureau if there is such a thing, you know, in their neighborhood, um, get testimonials, speak to people, you know, there's, there's a whole, I mean, I can't address everything now, there are people who should challenge you, you know, you don't just want the easy way, you don't just want the person who's close to you and convenient, you don't just want the person who's cheapest, you know, there's a lot of different reasons to, to get training. Uh, and, and to go for the best training that you can um, and to investigate the trainings that you're going to go into because, you know, you, you want to know. I've spent money on trainings that were bogus. And, and at the same time, because of who I am, I felt like I got something from it. I've spent money on really, really good trainings. I got nothing from it because I didn't apply myself. So, I mean, you know, it really is up to the, to the student or the practitioner or the participant to, to do it. Now, going, going to the book or going to the training or going to what NLP is about. I have said decades now, and people get, especially NLPers get mad at me, I go, NLP is nothing. It doesn't exist. It's a concept. You know, it's like a bag of tools. 
It's like a, a work, a, a carpenter's belt, tool belt. Yes, there are things on the tool belt, but they don't do anything or on their own. It takes the, the carpenter to, to use them to make them work. You can have my book. I used to do this as an actor. People say, what's more important, the actor or the screenplay? And I would take a screenplay and I'd throw it on the ground and to go, act. And it does nothing. The screenplay just lies on the floor. In fact, it doesn't lie on the floor because that's making it sound like it's doing something. But the screenplay is on the floor and we're looking at the screenplay on the floor. NLP is the same way. It doesn't do anything. It takes the human to make it work. And yes, it's been synthesized from everything. You can go back. I, and I've done this repeatedly where you go back through history and you go, ah, there's subadality. Oh, there's this. Oh, there's that. Oh, there's this. You know, that's why I said, or you said, hey, now, you know, modeling, you know, NLP claims to be the first to kind of model. Well, in a synthesized way and in a, in a packaged commercial 1970s, 80s way. Yeah, they were, they were ahead of the game in many ways by reintroducing people to things that had been all around the world. They managed to put it into one tool belt. Mm. And that's a good thing. And then, and then it got, the field got murky and muddy in the marketing. And it's not just what people say, because marketers will prey on people's fears and once, and I mean, this this is another fascinating discussion is Ed, Edward Benet's and the field of propaganda. propaganda. Yes, indeed. Yep. And and how we became the kind of society we are through through those means. And so marketing, while it's beautiful, is all based on you know your teeth aren't the right color, your hair isn't the right length or color, your your skin is flaky, your pits smell, your breath is horrible. You know, you're not able to have the romance or the life or the lifestyle that you want because of this. So you need, you know, this toothpaste or this deodorant or these kinds of clothes or that kind of thing, you know. So and so NLP law of attraction marketing is the same way. You know, you look. Charles ties in with that old saying. I know it's a saying cliche, but it's true in the context of what you've just said, that people are more likely to do something and take action to avoid pain than they are to actually grasp pleasure. I, I I'm gonna. It was yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was I was uh, um, listening to a dear, dear friend of mine whose whose mission is to end hunger, to feed the people. Okay. And I and I made the comment, you know, we need to think differently. We need to think about feeding the people, not about eradicating hunger. I meant it as think about it, hold it in your head that way. In other words, manifest what you want, because it's like, I don't want a green balloon. I don't want people to go hungry. We don't know what it is that they want. I mean, you can assume you do, but... And she made a really good point. You know, she deals with billionaires and governments and people all around the world. And she said, sometimes you have to tell them, hey, idiot, the kids are starving. They have no food in order to get their attention. Because if you just say, I want to feed people, they go, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But you have to go, they're cold, they're hungry, their bellies ache because they have no food. You sometimes have to punch them in the face to get them awake. And that's sad that you have to do that, but it is. We're conditioned for that. I mean, that is that is what we do, you know, as people. Um, the news is all you almost always bad news, with maybe a minute of good news at the end of it, you know, to make well, you feel classic saying in journalism, certainly in England, but I suspect elsewhere as well with newspapers, is if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning, right. the more tragic, traumatic, or painful the story, the more likely it's going to make the front page. And yet, yeah. what would the world be like if there was good news? fed to us instead of <laughs> negativity all the time 
Well, interestingly enough, you know, I, I do a show with the Los Angeles Tribune, and the goal of the Tribune is to to trans transform um, news in the world and make things uh, about positivity and about transformation. Next on my list, All Things Rex live weekly show, Los Angeles Tribune um facebook page facebook.com forward slash los angeles tribune or just tap in los angeles tribune and their website comes up oddly enough first on google as you may expect um I believe you can also get it on roku roku or roku tv uh-huh. yeah uh tell us a bit about the show oh yeah well when the show broadcasts live it broadcasts from the los angeles tribune facebook page first where people can ask questions and comments in fact today later today i have a show um, I don't know what it probably would be 9 p.m. Uh, well, let's see, it's, it'll be 5 p.m. when I record it, my time, and you're about six hours ahead of me, I believe. Yeah. So it'd be around 11 o'clock, um, but they can get the replay. But it, but it broadcasts it, if they're if you're in Europe in England. Well, you, well, you might be able to people because this is hopefully I'm going to get this out there before that time today. today so oh yeah. wow. So if if they do, I have Ben Gay the third, who was uh, one of Napoleon Hill's. Last mentees, studied with Napoleon Hill. He worked with uh, Clement Stone. He worked with Earl Nightingale, Zig Ziglar, and many, many of the top people. He's a he's an author. He's written a number of books. Three of them are the Closer series, and um, the sales trainings and everything around the world. So he's going to be my guest. My last guest on the show is Rory. I'm sorry, Remy Elbartuari, who's a billionaire. He's a, he's a billionaire, and he's made and lost billions multiple times. He, uh, he was homeless at the age of 12, became a millionaire at 17, a multimillionaire by 23, and a billionaire by 32. Wow. And as of five years ago, he had lost his money again and then got it all back. So, and he, he has come out with a book called Can You Really Think and Grow Rich? And he, because he followed, he started, I started reading Napoleon Hill about the same time he did. You know, I mean, different, we're different ages, but but I was around 11, he's 12, and he was homeless, born in Switzerland, but lived in Canada. He, he ran away to the United States, went to Florida as a homeless kid, but he said, I know that I can use these principles in Napoleon Hill, and he, he created an empire from that point on. So in All Things Rex, my last show, we talk about um, using those principles to, uh, to, to think and grow rich. And so the show, the L.A. Tribune, you can hear my beautiful girl dog saying hi to someone. Say, Everyone's best friends. Walk down the street. Oh, my God. These are incredible girls. I love them. I, I adore them so much. And Bailey's coming here and Sasha's over there. Um, the Los Angeles Tribune asked me, they asked me to do a show because I do another show called Create Your Best Life with Rex. And I also do a, a movie show called Rex Sykes Movie Beat. If you ask, Create Your Best Life with Rex Sykes on YouTube. That's also on movie-beat.com. Uh, actually, yeah, I do think that is. There is a movie-beat.com, but there's, it's uh, the podcast, Rex X Movie Beat is now on Anchor, I believe. I haven't, okay. I, it used to be on Blog Talk. It used to be, you know, on, on Apple. Uh, and somehow they managed to screw the whole thing up. I've got 600 hours and there are like three shows where, their feed something they did something so i i would i took it off and it's now i think on anchor so, so you can find it there but that's 600 hours of movie stuff then there's the videos that from create your best life with rex sykes which is a youtube channel and other things um so where were we the um yeah you sure 
So uh, they, they asked me to do a show. They came to me and said, would you, would you be willing to do a show on the Tribune, you know, using your background in inspiration and NLP and law of attraction and whole brain learning, blah, 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 and, and your entertainment and combine it. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So would you start this Thursday? And I'm like, no. <laughs> How about next week? I'm like, no. So what did I, I said, give me a month or so. I want to make sure I find the perfect guest. So I thought, well, who can I, who do I know that I would like to, to do this show? Do I want it to be entertainment? Do I want it to be inspirational? Ideally, I'd like it to be both. And a few days before I said I would do the show, a publicist, this is what the law of attraction I, you know, I love. I, a publicist friend of mine who I've known for many years through Rex Sykes movie, um, emailed me, said, would you be interested in this? And I looked at it, read it, and went, in a heartbeat, yes, put me in touch. The day that my show was debuting is the day that their movie was going, having a red carpet premiere. And the movie was called Altitude, Not Attitude. And oh. it's the story of Michael Warkington, who was a 22-year-old surfer who fell three stories when he was 22 and was made a quadriplegic for life. Maggie Avila is an actress who uh, learned about Michael and his story, who he's now in his 40s, learned about his story and decided to do a documentary on him. So the documentary was having their red carpet premiere the day that my show is premiering. So they said, um, well, this is fantastic. We can, we can just broadcast from the red carpet. So yes. they, they got me Michael and Maggie, who have since become friends. And, um, and the show went live that day with them. Perfect, because Michael is now a, he's a, he's a, very, a wealthy financial advisor who travels the world in his specially made wheelchair to accommodate his quadriplegic body. Um, helping people and doing good around the world. And, and Maggie is this uh, director, actress, who's been helping people for, for many. I just contacted her the other day, said, hey, there's another story here. Maybe you'd be interested and let's, let's talk. So we need to be talking about somebody else who's a friend uh, and, and see if, if we can make a documentary about this other person. But um, so the show premieres, right? And, and the, the CEO of... of uh, the Los Angeles Tribune is an incredible man, a, a leader himself. It's called Mo Rock. And he uh, wanted to stay for the debut of my show. So he turned, he said, I have an event I'm supposed to go to, but I'm, I'm, I'm canceled. I'm not going to do it. I want to be here for your show. Turned out the event he was invited to was that red carpet premiere for the movie. Excellent. And then, I mean, look at how this all comes together. Right. So, so he's there. The friend that invited him has become, I mean, it, we, this, this world got very small. But we debuted the show, I don't know how many months ago, six, seven months ago. And um, we've done a show every every week. We recently had Les Brown. He's, you know, the number one motivation yeah. in the world. Uh, Alex Flynn, who's from your country, from England, just died in November. It's very sad. My blog the other day. Um, I, I want to talk about Alex for a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, go on. Alex Flynn was my third guest. My first guest was Michael Workington and, and Avi and uh, Maggie Avila. My second guest is the accidental gangster, Ori Spado. This is the mafia crime boss who, who went to prison and, and came out, you know, uh, rehabilitated and said, I want to dedicate the rest of my life to philanthropy and helping people avoid a life of crime. Wrote a book called The Accidental Gangster. He's become a dear friend. But I talked to him uh, this morning. He called me about, he's, he's in Los Angeles. I'm in the Midwest. So about 5 o'clock a.m. his time and about 7 a.m. my time. And we spoke for half hour, 40 minutes. We talk almost every day. Um, a beautiful man. And then my third guest was Alex Flynn. And Alex was a, a barrister in your country who developed Parkinson's at 36 years old. 
and he decided he was not going to let this stop him. So he began doing physical challenges. He started doing um, marathons. He's, he circumvented the globe more than twice with wow. the number of miles he ran in marathons. There, he, he said that he did a, there was a, a, a push-up contest where the most push-ups recorded in history was something like 50, 900 push-ups or something like that. He said, I blew my shoulder out at 3,700 push-ups. I'm like, I mean, you know, get me to do 10 push-ups. He did 3,700 push-ups yeah. and blew out his shoulder. He did all of these things because he said, what happens with Parkinson's is that the world gets smaller. There's fewer and fewer things that you can do. It, it's, it's, it's not about the tremors. It's about the fact that you can't move. So getting up in the morning or getting out of bed or putting your feet on the floor can be excruciatingly painful. He said, I'm not going to let that dictate my life. It's, you know, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live. So he started challenging himself physically and, and continued to do so. So he's the third guest on my show probably this past year and I'm going to say April, May, I don't know when, when it was, I don't remember the date. His goal is and was to climb Mount Everest next year. So this year he was going to climb three different mountain peaks for training for that thing. And so he had been training and on November 8th, he surmounted um, Mira's peak in Nepal. He got to the top and then suffered a fatal heart attack. Folks. And his memorial is there in, in England, somewhere in London, somewhere um, on the 15th. It's in my blog. Uh, I think we're going to publish it in the Herald, in the, I'm sorry, in the, in the LA Tribune t today or tomorrow. They're going to do an online tribute. You know, you can attend virtually by emailing a request. Um, the family wants to continue his pursuit because everything he was doing was to highlight this disease and to raise money for its eradication, essentially. And sadly, he did die while doing his mission. You know, he in, in, in the execution of his mission, he passed away. And uh, very sad because he had become a friend and just a lovely, lovely, lovely person. Um, and so uh, I'd like to keep his light shining as, as much as I can. And I'm sure, you know, the family will as well because he's tr truly an example for the rest of us. Um, and the same, same attitude that Michael Workington had. He's like, life is too short not to have fun. I'm not going to let what I can't do. Why do you think it is? I mean, I know there's, there's exceptions to everything, obviously. So I am generalizing a bit. There's people out there who hit rock bottom and they remain at rock bottom or they pick up a bit and just carry on with life. But generally speaking, why do you think it is that the people who really become pioneers in fields or do something amazing for different things to help people or become, um, you know, really key names in whatever industry or hobby. The largest majority seem to have had some really shit point or points in their life. What, what, why do you think that commonality seems to be there? I, I think that is that that is the uh, well. It's beautiful that you bring it up, and I think it's beautiful that it happens. Uh, I think law of cause and effect. You know, it's the, it's the idea that whenever there's a cause, there's an equal or opposite effect. So whenever there's good, there's going to be something that may be not so good. Whenever there's not so good, there may be something that's good. So we always see this push and pull, like the waves coming in and the waves going out. You know, it's hot and cold. It's night and day. There's there's forces polar polar opposites that tend to you know, to, uh, to, to act. And, you know, you can use an aphorism or a reframe, like it doesn't happen to me, it happens for me. And I, and I 
But I truly think that because, you know, whether it was Steve Jobs who originated a statement or not, you can look back and connect the dots, but it's difficult to look forward and connect the dots. But many, many people who look back on their life go, I mean, I could look at an actor friend of mine, Nick Mancuso, who was a star and he's, he's a beautiful man, but he was a big star in the 70s and the 80s in, in film and television. We were talking one day and he said, how did you end up in the Midwest? <laughs> and I told him, you know, one thing led to the other. And he goes, my God, it's ordained by God. Because you have to, you have to, you have to write this story. You have to make it a movie. I'll help you. And well, we haven't done it, but I mean, because for me, it's not that important to tell that story. But you know, when you look back, you know, the, the girl that that essentially broke up with me when I was having my crisis that I write about in the book, I loved. I didn't think I could live without her at the time. And with all due respect to her, I'm so glad that we're not together. I mean, I met somebody else. I'm not with that person either now, but I have two amazing children. And you say, well, you'd have had children with other people. Yeah, of course. And I probably would feel the same way about those kids too. You know, my, even my kids would say that when I was a kid, I go, I love you more than anything. They go, well, yeah, your dad, you have to say that. I go, yes, but you are who showed up. You're my gift in the world. You, you are the, the, you know, what the universe has blessed me with, you know, you, 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 you have your destiny, you know, don't, 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 you know, not, you're not my kid, you're your own person kind of thing, but you're my gift. Uh -huh. um, Napoleon Hill, of the 520 people that he modeled, get this, he said toward the end of his life in 1970 in, in, in this other book, Think and Grow Rich with Peace of Mind, he said only one of the 520 people actually had a, a, a great life, and that was John Burroughs, the naturalist. He said it because he sought peace, but everybody else sought money, and he said they... <laughs> because they just wanted money and didn't know how to handle it. Some of them then, you know, became alcoholics and drug addicts when things didn't work out. Some killed themselves. Some went to jail for crimes. Their kids were basket cases in many, in many because they, they inherited money. They didn't know what to do with. So they didn't learn how to live better. But of those 520, before they got rich, they also underwent incredible hardship and incredible difficulty, like, like Remy you know, made and lost fortunes or like Michael becomes a quadriplegic or Alex gets Parkinson's. It, it seems that in order to unlock our potential and to get out of our own conditioning, the, the cultural conditioning that we have worldwide is it sometimes, you know, takes a huge flashlight, which I think is what COVID is, which I think what's going on politically in the world is right now. It's an opportunity for us to go beyond and to transform and to, and to find the silver lining inside of things that seem otherwise uh, not necessarily good. I and agree I, with I, you to a degree, but unfortunately, <laughs> I'm gonna throw it out there, but if people Google the great global reset <laughs> and look at the American and UK government websites, I'm not on about conspiracy theory websites, I'm on about the United States government's own website and the British government's own website and websites around the world uh, of governments search the Great Global Reset, and also the phrase build back better. And notice the weird coincidence of how all these world leaders together keep coming out with the phrase build back better, because it's short, sweet, and pithy, just as um, Edward Bernays would have said in his book, Propaganda. It's to condition to the fact, and then look into what the Great Global Reset really means, and um, <clears throat> come to your own conclusions whether or not it's about freedom or whether it's about 
controlling us all. Well, I here I, I don't disagree with you. I do think that there's a whole, you know, there's a handful of people who run the world. Let's just put it that way. I mean, there's there's this oligarchy of, of extremely hidden, very very wealthy people who own the shipping lanes, the, the transportation lanes, the oil industry, the food industry, the travel. I mean, you name it. It's all it's all carved up. It's all, and whether there's a an explicit conspiracy where they all go, let's let's carve up the world so that we all have the power and everybody else doesn't. Or whether it's an implicit one that just is let's let's you know each maximize our resources and somehow because they're you know like a good old boys club or you know you up level your friends when you change you know your your income and things like that sometimes you have some old friends and they fall away or you know yeah i don't know i mean i'm, I'm, I'm not gonna here venture what it is i know that the day that lockdown happened in, in this country i gave away training i just said look if you're going to be locked up here use this training so that when it when you come out of the lockdown you have better skills and abilities and, and talents. Excellent. Of, of all, but here's, here's, here's the good and sad news. Think of it this way. 97% of the population, 98% of the population has, has no plans for retirement. You know, if they, if something happens tomorrow, they, they, they don't have the money to, to do it. They live paycheck to paycheck or they don't have any money at all, or they're, you know, they're infirmed or, or they're in poverty. 97, 98% of the country. So uh, world, one or two percent of the population has more wealth than the, all of the rest of the population combined, right? Yeah. I give away a, a program. Let's say I give a thousand programs, so I'm just giving you a number. Two hundred people will use the program. You know, we think about you know think in terms of ninety-seven or ninety-eight percent. The rest don't use it, don't apply it, don't do it. They they get it, they got it on their shelf. They don't open it or they open it, they get it. There, we are conditioned that way. I mean, people have been conditioned for a long time. So the fact that there's continual conditioning going on right now doesn't surprise me in the very least. And there will always be the opposing force. And, you know, we entered 1984 before 1984, and <laughs> we just never have admitted it. So I, I, I don't disagree. I still think it's an opportunity. You know, Viktor Frankl was imprisoned in a, in a, in a concentration camp, wrote Man's Search for Meaning, said, you know, uh, you don't have to let your experience define you. Gandhi said, you can torture me and imprison me, but you can't take away my imagination. You don't have to let your experience define you. And there are other people who exemplify that. Sad part is that 97 or 98% of the people will allow it to define them because yeah. they don't know any better. And that's why the people who are suffering the most, like what you just said, why is it that these people have these cataclysmic things that go on to do great things? because they decide I need to do something to contribute to the world. I have to change. I have to help things transform. It can be better. Build back better would be an incredible phrase. I said, don't go back the way we are. Let's come back better. If Let's it had positive intent and stuff behind it, then yeah, it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? Well, we, I mean, we, I don't want what we had. I want something better, but that may need, to, you know, in other words, if I've got a faulty house, the foundation is horrible and the walls are cracked and everything, you sometimes you have to have that house removed or fall down or, or destroyed so that you can build a new one in its place. And Here's I, a weird out with a angle on this then question for you. Um, okay. Sigmund Freud. What I like to call him, sick mind fraud. Um, I agree he, with you. <laughs> apparently, he's supposed to have said at one time, uh, most therapists are merely people searching for answers to their own yeah. problems. And that, that, that kind of 
two prong, two bits I want to ask your, your view and opinion on. One is a statement. Most therapists get into it because they're searching for answers to their own problems. And in my personal opinion, sadly, most of them never get the bloody <laughs> cells sorted out. Um, but the, what we're seeing with the world right now in December 2021, as we do this, um, and I won't use certain words because it gets podcasts taken down and stuff, but what we're seeing around the world, the madness that's going on, um, is that it appears that although a lot of a growing number of people know that something isn't quite right, and I'm not saying that there's definitely something that kills people. I know people personally, sadly, who who've not got through this. Um, but they're taking advantage of it. Certain people are taking advantage of this um, it, to make money mm -hmm. in, in unethical, illegal ways, immoral ways. People are, are politically harnessing this. To, but there's a lot of negativity being used or, or negative intent. And a lot of people deep down, I think, do feel that there's something not right. But they still kind of feel they don't do anything or say anything or change because they're used to somebody telling them what to do. And I think that ties in with why quite often, and I know your book's quite different, and we'll come back to that with the final question, but quite often people need to go to a therapist, and although, despite the fact it's true, no therapist has ever, can't wave a magic wand to make anyone do anything they couldn't do themselves, but people sometimes need to go through that ritualistic process of going to the authority figure so that you can remove that self-blame, shame, guilt, and regret from themselves for not having got off their ass and done something sooner, um, which psychically kind of then brings me back to Sigmund Freud saying most therapists are searching for answers to the problems. What do you make of that rant? I've just <laughs> I love it. Actually, I love it. I mean, I think everything that goes on in a person's life, whether it's, and I always say this, you know, in NLP, we, we, we popularize the phrase and, and we're maybe not the first, there are useful lies. In other words, don't believe what I'm saying. You know, verify it for yourself, check it out, investigate and see if it's true for you or not true for you, but have that openness and willingness to be able to do so. Whether it's true or not, there are, um, I think that everything that goes on in the world globally and everything that goes on in each of our personal lives is literally a call for us to wake up and to discover who we truly are, who we were born to be, and to live that and be fulfilled. And, and, and because from the ages of zero to eight, as you know, we are conditioned. We're in Delta primarily the first couple of years and, and then in Theta. And so we're just this kind of hypnotic sponge. And, and what happens after that, as we enter grade school, primary school, you know, high school, college and everything else, everything that we have to do comes about through habituation or, or habit formation and repetition. In other words, whether you learn to crawl and then walk, you did it by repeating the same thing over and over again. You learn to read and write by doing the same thing over again. You learn your ABCs by reciting them in a song over and over again. You learn the, the countries and the, their capitals by rote repetition, you know, and memorization. Everything that you learned how to eat with a spoon by doing it over and over again, learn to drive a car, ride a bike, do a skateboard, swim, dive, play piano, cook, whatever it is you learn, you learn through repetition, correct repetition, 
repeated consistently for long enough becomes a habit. And then once it becomes a habit, you leave the phase of having to walk yourself through it. Like when we all learned to ride a bike or, or drive a car, there was that awkward phase where we were trying to manipulate all these things. It's kind of when we're consciously competent, we're talking ourselves through it. We're trying to direct it with our head. We're trying to pay attention to all these different things. And then we do it enough. And then one day it's a habit. We get in the car and we drive without thinking about it. Now we drive primarily unconsciously with some conscious attention. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully. And, and but so, this, so the same thing is true that now as an adult or as, as somebody who's gone who's older, Aristotle said, show me the seven-year-old child and I'll show you the adult because of our conditioning. In other words, we're, we're our personality, our mindset, our values, our beliefs, our preferences, our limitations, you know, our, our talents are usually set by the time we're seven or eight years old. Then it's just a matter of going through experience and going, yep, verifying it. Yep. You know, we have these great terms like, uh, you know, uh, uh, now, um, confirmation bias and things like that, you know, yeah. or cognitive dissonance, uh, fancy jargon words for, for things like, you know, if it doesn't feel right with you and you're getting some information, there's this disconnect and it feels bad. We call it cognitive dissonance. If you're looking for proof that you're correct in your assumptions, then we call it confirmation bias. You know, we already know all these things without having new psychological terms. You say Sigmund Freud, I say Carl Junk. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's all part oh, of this. Excellent. It's, part, it's all part of the same thing. In other words, you know, as a neurolinguistic programmer and hypnotist, that, that words def, you know, set our expectations. They describe our reality. They aren't our reality. They're our description of reality. So, so we're trying to describe reality. We're trying to assign meaning. We assign cause and effect. We do all these different things to the world. And that's just what we do as humans. And, and so we, uh, we end up with certain beliefs that this is the way the world works or, and that means a certain thing. And, and, and that we know this because of why, because of, of our experiences or because of our childhood or because I, I had this experience or because this person told me. Yeah, all this stuff goes on. And at the same time, before that, we were just this being that came onto the planet that giggled a lot and laughed a lot, cried when we got wet, screamed when we were hungry, did all these things, and then got conditioned to be a to be a, a, a person on the planet and then eventually a citizen in a country, you know, and, and an educated essentially citizen of the country so that we follow orders and, and remain in the lines and follow the velvet ropes and do all the things that we're told so that we can be controlled. Now, is that all malevolent maybe and maybe not maybe it's just the way things are i don't want to assign um a, a nefarious purpose to anything but there are there are predators there are people who like you said when the when the economy goes up they make money when the economy goes down they make money when the economy goes sideways they make money when bad things happen they make money some of those are very good people who just know how to make money and then use that money in in positive philanthropic ways and others use it to just enrich themselves and hoard money you know, I have no problem with somebody being the richest person on the planet. In my book, if you're the richest person on the planet, you then funnel that money back into the planet because there's no point in hoarding it. I can hoard all the toilet paper in the world, but what does it get me? You know, <laughs> so so yeah. there, are, there are predators and there are marketing predators and there are people out there teaching programs and courses, both online and offline for, for centuries now that have been criminals. But not everybody is. And not, not everything that appears bad is bad. Not everything that appears good may be good. And it's our job to find out who we are, our authentic self, without all the conditioning, 
and to get free of that. Like Buddha, you know, if, if you if you identify with your thoughts, then your thoughts. And that so perfectly leads me into the last question. We've gone just we've gone slightly over the hour, but that's that's cool because it's been pure gold. Thank you so much, Rex. My, my but I think that segues us perfectly back to your book. Uh, uh -huh. Now, obviously, people can go to rexsykes.com, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com, uh, where they can also get your training courses and audio products. And there's a link there for the book to go and buy it. Um, but the book is about people finding their true, authentic self and becoming who they want to be, who they're meant to be. How would you sum it up? To someone, what, what is it that makes it different from those myriad of self-help books that, I mean, you've already told us there's one thing that it's got in common with other self-help books is, and that's nothing's going to happen unless you get off your ass and put it into action. And that's great. But how's it different? Well, let me say this. If, if our future is to end up dominated by a malevolent government, like it was for... Um, Victor Frankl, where he ended up in a concentration camp, mm -hmm. then how are you going to go through that concentration camp? Frankl decided that he was going to go through it. Michael Workin said, life is too short. I'm not going to live as a quadriplegic and suffer and, and, and bemoan the fact that I've had something taken from me. I'm going to live as a champion. Alex Flynn said, Parkinson's is not going to define me. Ori Spado said, you know what? I was a gangster. I was a mafia guy, but I'm not going to let that be my legacy. I'm going to transform and change myself. And every single one of us can do that. We can find either our authentic self or we can transform ourselves and help transform the world. You know, the more that we contribute, you know, the more that we get it together and contribute to other people, the saying, the rising tide floats the whole boat and all whom are in it. So I think what my book represents is that call is to say, regardless of what you're dealt in life or regardless of what our governments deal to us, there's a way of going through it, of navigating it, that allows you to do so head and shoulders above and beyond anything that anyone else will do or tell you, because too many people are, are caught in victim mode. The 97% of the people who don't bother to transform themselves. And, and again, it goes back to Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. But he said the most important thing later, and that was, I never let what I cannot do determine what I can do. And that is what Michael Workins said. That is what Alex Flynn said. That is what um, Ori Spado said. That's what almost every one of my guests, uh, Rami uh, Al-Batwari has said, is I'm not going to let circumstances or events or other people dictate how I live. I'm going to live life on my terms. And that's what the book is, why the book is called Life on Your Terms, is you decide. And that doesn't mean at the exclusion of everybody else. That's not I am an island and screw yourself. That's how do we how do we do this together? The way we do it is we get in a boat, like think about rowing. You know, you, you get in a boat, you all face the same direction. You row at the same time and the same thing in a direction and you'll get there faster. If you're all rowing at different speeds, sitting in different directions, trying to go in different ways, we ain't going to do it. So this is how do you align yourself first, heart? I'm sorry, heart, head, your speech and your behaviors so that you're completely congruent and aligned so that anything you want to do becomes easier to do because you're congruent. You're not fractionated. You're not distraction. You know, you don't believe all these crappy bullshit therapeutic descriptions that we have in the world. You start living from your truth, you know, 
And because I'm not a fan of the shadow side, I'm not a fan of the ego and all that kind of all the kind of phrases that we have, you know, there's no such thing as self-sabotage. You know, your brain works perfectly well to get a result. And the problem is most people just don't know how to run their brain. NLP said, you know, uh, we'll give you an owner's manual. Oh, but the problem I'm going to I'm going to have to pull you there because <laughs> some people go, oh, what does it mean? Now, I agree with you, actually. But I think that it just triggered into my head. Emil Kuehr. Who uh, Emil Kuehr, or yeah, yeah. Day by Day in Every Way, I'm getting better and better. Yeah. Um, he, I forget which of his books it was, but he basically, I'm going to paraphrase, it said something along the lines of, your brain runs perfectly, and, 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 unless you've obviously got a genetic brain injury or something, but generally speaking, your brain runs perfectly for you to be able to do anything and everything. It's there to protect you, or it thinks it's doing its best for you, but as you said earlier, the formative years, it's beliefs and right. if we use the computer analogy, uh, programs that get stored and are running may not be consistent with what you need or want now. And those need changing and you have got to do some work yourself and most people just won't. But your book is kind of the, the, the operator's manual to be able to go in there and make those changes. No, it, it is. And, 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 and let me use an analogy that I often use. Back in 1980, I was uh, hired to star in a movie with some other people uh, where I had to learn how to ride a horse. I was playing death on horseback, so I had to look like I knew what I was doing. I couldn't be flopping all over the place and, and be a convincing death, right? So um, they gave me over six months. It may have been longer. I don't remember. I just say six months of daily horseback riding lessons with the premier horse wranglers in Hollywood, you know, in the, in the film business. I mean, what a blessing that was, yeah. right? So, uh, so that on the day of first day of shooting, one of the wranglers wrote up to me and said, you look like you've been on a horse your entire life. And I was like, yes, you know, that was my goal. I to, to look really good. And the, the first day of shooting, we had to gallop at breakneck speed. I mean, literally at breakneck speed, I'm chasing this woman on horseback in a dream sequence and they got, trucks fogging up the place and the camera truck in front of it. I mean, very precarious and, and potentially life-threatening um, filming. And, and we, uh, I won't go into it, but we, we did nearly get ourselves killed. But um, fortunately, we didn't. Obviously, we didn't. <laughs> um, so here's, here's the thing. They went through with me. I, I got to write myself, but with the lead actress, um, and it was an actress named Charlene Tilton, who was big from the TV show Dallas and other things. Um, they they doubled her because they had to because of her TV series. So they had other people riding for her. And she wanted to do her own riding, but they wouldn't let her. Uh, me, they were like, well, you're expendable. We can get another guy. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and, and they could have. But at any rate, it took them three different women riders to get one that could ride because these horses are so well trained that if you lay the rein on one side of their mane, it means one command. If it goes the other side, if you lay it this way, but lean this way, it means one thing. If you lean forward, it means that way. You're constantly giving commands to the horse, whether it's to rear up, to run, to turn, to do these things, by how you're positioned in the saddle and what you do. For example, to rear up, you would grab the mane and pull on the mane, you know, and then the horse will rear up. And so you'd say, like Zorro or whatever. If you don't know what you're doing, you can't ride. And this is why they had to get finally get to the third woman is they would inadvertently be giving the horse different commands. And it's confusing this really well-trained horse because the rider is not a good rider. Yeah. And so here's my analogy in order to get, if you, if you go horseback riding today and you go to one of these 
stables where they go around the ring and they come back. They're called stable nags. They just do what they've been conditioned to do. The horse does. You either get that ride or you get on the horse and it'll just stand there. and You don't know how to get it to go. You're like, come on, go, go. And the horse won't do anything. It does because it knows you don't know anything. It doesn't do anything. In order for you to get where you want to go, you have to be a really good rider. So you transform yourself into somebody who can ride the horse. Then you get on the horse and ride it where you want it to go instead of where it wants to go. Same thing is true of the subconscious mind. The better rider you are, the more you can direct it. It'll do whatever you want it to do. You just have to be able to give it the right commands and not confuse it. And most people, 97% of people, spend their life confusing their own brain. They're all over the place. When you get clear on what it is you want and how you and articulate, I want a red balloon and this is how I want it. And you'll come, you can, you can say uh, every day and every way I'm getting better and better until you're blue in the face, because if you don't tie it to emotions and if you don't tie it to other things, your brain's never going to get the signal. So you have to know what to do in order to get your brain to respond and the brain responds in very specific ways. Cause that's what, that's what it is. It's, it's not one thing, one day and one thing, another day. It only seems that way because we're bouncing all over the saddle. Would, would you say it's fair? Um, that's that way, not peace, but uh, two meaning number two, nothing rude. Anyone. I nearly screwed up that uh, the, the two of the main ways, the unconscious, subconscious, whatever model, any viewer or listener may follow because it is all just constructs anyway, but the bit that we're not consciously aware of, whatever you want to call it, that two of the main ways it's activated, controlled, manipulated, changed, uh, affected, whatever word, context you want to put it in, uh, it's through emotions, stroke energy, and through um, symbolism, imagery. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I would venture this, and, and what my book is about is learning how to be a, a good writer of your own brain, but also this, a lot of people live, in, in my workshops, you know, I used to talk about this all the time, we've got about 4,000 words that connotate human emotions, and most of them are negative, and some of them are positive, but most of them are negative, they're worry, fear, frustration, anger, angst, you know, whatever, and our vocabulary, you know, determines a lot about what we can what, what we can entertain. So if I say a word and you or I don't know the meaning of it, we, we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So if you learn the meaning of the word, then, then you have a, a representation of that. Well, the same thing is true. Moshe Feldenkrais used to say we have about a half a dozen, maybe a dozen different body positions that we go into routinely. They're habituated. Not only that, but we have the same in terms of our emotional vocabulary. We have very limited things. We get horny the same way. We get angry the same way. We get happy the same way. We get frustrated the same way. Different things trigger it. But neurologically, the way it happens in our body is very, very systematic. You know, whatever triggers it, there's, a, there's you know, the, the neurons fire, and then there's a sequence to what chemicals and what order it happens to that. That's why you can tell you're getting frustrated, or you can tell you're getting angry, or you can tell you're getting sexually aroused, or you can tell you're getting, you know, curious, because you're, you know what those signals are. And they can either happen De deliberately because you want them to or haphazardly or inadvertently okay what most people miss is that they live life the same way going through the same five or six emotions most of the time it's like as long as they're okay if it's not too bad and they're in their comfort zone fine but they don't really get outside their comfort zone and they don't really explore different things. That's why in my workshops, I had little old ladies and men rolling down hills. I'd have them eating with the opposite hand or, or walking blindfold backwards to you know, these mazes and things like that to play like little children, to captivate the joy of learning. 
because as kids, we learned more just by being outside playing with, you know, running after butterflies and looking at birds and playing, watching the same movie hundreds of times, but as if it were new each and every time, get going, wah, you know, whatever it was. And, and so we were thrilled, you know, and the baby, when you think about it, the baby would go, I don't want food. And then you give it food. And it's like, yeah, it, it would shift, you know, very rapidly from not this to this, not this to this. And we have this kind of thing of if, if it's not a problem, don't fix it kind of thing. I'm, and I'm okay. Well, you have to have the highs. Your brain needs to get the signals. The best thing to do for your brain and for your overall health and well-being and I have a product, it's called the Attitude Activator, but the thing is, and the reason why I did that was because attitude is the number one predictor for success in health and healing and longevity, as well as every other area of your life. The, the better your attitude, the more optimistic and powerful your attitude, the more apt you are to heal, to experience health and to live longer. Because we know that when we're thinking negatively or feeling negatively, we're also squirting hormones and chemicals that depress yeah. the immune system causes stress and create disease and disorder. So the best thing that any one of the listeners or viewers can do is to very listen carefully to this because this is very apt to the world we're living now in December 2021 with a certain illness going around the world, you right. know, aside it's, it's from good. perhaps taking things like vitamin C and, you know, other stuff that's good for your immune system. How's about positive state of mind as Rex is going to tell you and you can learn more in his book, Life on Your Terms, because then that will help your immune system. Well, and and I'm and and just so people know, I'm not saying don't go to a doctor, or don't not get. Vaccinated. Oh no, of course, yeah, yeah. You know, it's whatever whatever you decide, but you can you can assist it. We know that 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 Travis Air Force Base did a study back back in the seventies. 157 cancer patients. And that's where a lot of this came from. Back when I was doing my early work in the 80s, there was only about 100, maybe 150 studies on expectations, the placebo effect, visualization, health and healing. Now there's something like 40,000 studies that, that continue to verify that what you expect to happen, while it may or may not come true, you create the likelihood for it. So if you think it's going to be hard, it's more likely that it will be hard. If you think it's going to be bad, it's more likely that it will be bad. Not that it absolutely will be, but it will be. In other words, you, your perceptions, your beliefs, your attitude, your outlook determine how you go through life. So if you get up in the morning and you look for smiles, you're more apt to find smiles. Might you find a frown or two? Absolutely you might. In the same way that if you get up in the morning looking for frowns, you're more bound to find frowns, find frowns than you are, but might you find some smiles or two? Yes, you absolutely are. Good things can happen to bad people and bad things can happen to good people. So forget about that. Just live joyously. The more joy you, you experience, the more optimism you experience. You know, positive thinking is not, as has been popularized, there are no weeds, there are no weeds, there are no weeds. Positive thinking is I can handle the weeds. I can make my garden beautiful. And if I can't do it, I can find somebody who can. In other words, it's not about ignoring, you know, fanciful thinking. It's about going, I, I have a workaround here. If, as I said before, you end up in a concentration camp like Viktor Frankl, the question becomes is, how do you go through that experience? Do you buckle and whine and complain and, 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 and become, you know, you know, there are people who got through these experiences, you know, and live to tell about them and, and some didn't. And it is with anything, two people can go through similar experiences and one lives a victim all of their life and goes, you'll never believe what happened to me when I was 13. And the other one goes, you'll never believe what happened to me when I was 13. I went through this horrible thing. And if it hadn't been for that, I wouldn't be the person I am today. So you have a choice. Dog shit or diamonds. Or dog crap and diamonds, just in case. And you have to choose. 
choose. Which one do you want? Dog crap or diamonds? And I say wisely, I hope you choose diamonds. Live happy, live joyous, live in gratitude. And guess what? Your experience changes. And that's what life on your terms is about, is living life on your terms, creating the life that you want, and then allowing other people to do the same so that we cooperate and collaborate together in making the world a better place. Thanks. Jonathan. Thank you, Rex. Can I thank just say you. thank you so much for your time. Viewers and listeners, as Rex has so correctly pointed out, you have choices. Uh, you could just finish watching this or finish listening and do nothing, or you could actually visit the links that will be below this video or audio, and while you're there, grab a copy of Rex's book, and then when it comes, actually read it, but more importantly, then take some action and see those changes start occurring. Rex, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're a legend. Thank you, sir. You've been awesome. I so appreciate this. I love this. And thank you. And anytime. I mean, it has been an amazing experience. And, and, I, and I love how you've led me through the experience today. Thank you. Thank you. Boys and girls, please do me a favor. Click like on YouTube, Vimeo, Anchor, all the podcast platforms. Share this video, all the audio version, far and wide, uh, because this will help you your family, your friends. This is not just for therapists, this one. The content of this one uh, is basically for every human being on the planet. Thank you very much, Rex. Thank you, viewers and listeners. Goodbye. And...